As, uh, remember back in like, it was in the 90s and the um, early 2000s. You know, so you said you were a Christian. Sometimes a person would say, well, are you a born again Christian? Who here remembers that? Do you guys, that was kind of like a thing? A few hands, kind of, yeah. And um, um, yeah, I think people below 20 don't, have not experienced that as much, right? Um, and uh, one of the things I picked up is when someone asks you that question, are you born again? Uh, what you mean by it and what they mean by it could be completely different. Because like it or not, whether we want to admit this or not, the expression born again Christian became, kind of have a cultural meaning, and it wasn't always good. Like, not always at all. I mean, it seemed to be like, insinuate that you were like a uh, religious fanatic, you hated critical thinking. You know, I think almost born again Christian became kind of like fundamentalist. Right? No one wants to be called a fundamentalist. You're like, I mean, you know, they, they call people of other religions fundamentalists. It's never a good thing, right? Um, others might think uh, that you're saying when you're born again that you must be this really strict or self-righteous person who doesn't drink and dance and chew and go with the girls that do, right? And so you don't go to movies. You don't see you know, the new Star Wars when it comes out. You don't see anything because movies are evil, board games are evil. You just sit, I don't know, in the bathroom and twiddle your thumbs. Who knows, right? And so because everything's bad, right? That's what a born-again Christian is. Everything's bad. And um, that's what the negative connotation kind of became. Um, a lot of people think when you hear born again Christian, you think of prominent leaders like Billy Graham, Greg Laurie, and Ned Flanders. Oh, never mind. That's from The Simpsons. That's not a prominent evangelical leader. Um, and so in researching this, I found, interestingly enough, that many self-professed Christians don't want to be called uh, born-again Christians. Uh, for example, 70% of Americans will claim to be Christian, but only 30%. 30% say they're born-again Christians. So the other 40%, like, they want to avoid that, like the plague, right? They don't want to take on that title, taking Christianity to some fanatical level or something. And, you know, so people think of, like, you know, Christians as those people that have, like, all the weird, crazy bumper stickers on their car. I saw, I had a friend send me a picture of, like, a car, and, like, the guy's car was, like, plastered in, like, Stickers, the end is near, you know, stuff like that. Um, or, you know, one of those people who, you know, it doesn't have to be to do with anything. You could be talking about water or coffee or whatever it is. You could be talking about the weather and they try to insert a Bible verse into every topic of conversation, right? That's what we think of born-again Christians. Uh, you know, the way I think about it um, is, you know, there's people that like cats, right? They have just one. Right? And then there's like the crazy cat lady, like, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer style, all the cats come into the house. They're all hanging out there, you know? And like, that's what, you know, Christians are like, well, I like, you know, Jesus and, you know, born again Christians. They're like the cat lady of the Christian world, right? Everything just all intense, right? And that is not what a born again Christian is, you know, some exaggerated like caricature of like a crazy Bible thumper. According to the uh, book of Romans, it doesn't even matter if you call yourself a born again Christian, that does not make you a born-again Christian. It's a transformation that occurs on the inside of our hearts. God does to us. 
And we have been kind of going through the book of Romans, and we have the first part of Romans, which is a diagnosis section. No one likes a diagnosis from a doctor. It's usually a failure pile and a sadness bowl. It's very sad. No one likes a diagnosis. So this section has been a little heavy-handed for us, right? Then we had the, the deliverance section, which is going to be in Romans 3, and I can't wait till we get there, because, you know, I need, this is, we're kind of going through here. Um, the deliverance section, which is Romans 4, verse uh, all the way to uh, chapter 11. And starting in 12, we get the what a delivered life looks like, the kind of boots on the ground, uh, so to speak. What does it look like to be delivered? And so uh, here we get a glimmer of hope, though, uh, as Paul is giving his diagnosis of religious people and hypocrisy. He gives us a glimmer of hope and saying, no, it doesn't matter what you call yourself religiously or whatever it is. What matters is a circumcision of the heart. What matters is an inward transformation. What matters is a new creation being born again. And uh, so he, he references the hope here, the deliverance that we have in Christ. Um, so let's kind of go through here and see what Paul has for us this morning, verse by verse. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, so he's talking about all the benefits of being a part of Judaism of his day is that they had the word of God, they had the law of God so that they could instruct people, they could tell people about God's truth. He says here in verse 20, an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of children, having the, in the law the embodiment and knowledge of truth. This is God's chosen people and they have God's truth. Like we as Christians, we have greater truth. We have the New Testament. And so we can kind of relate to where they're at. We have God's truth. But he goes on to say, it's kind of heavy handed diagnosis section here. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Well, you preach against stealing. Do you steal? You who uh, say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? So what's he talking about here? Something that happens in churches. It's the H word, not H-E double hockey sticks, not that one. Hypocrisy, right? He's talking about that one. And uh, hypocrisy is in the Christian church, and we all struggle with it. You know, when you evangelize, to, uh, to, to non-Christians, what they'll often say to you is, well, I don't want to go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites there. Um, which I always like to say, well, you know, uh, we're all hypocrites, so what's the matter with one more? Come on in, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Just come on in. No, no, no big deal. Um, and so every, the point is everybody's hypocritical, but I guess it's more prominent with religious people because we do this all the time. We, we, we state uh, something we believe and we do the opposite, or we think something we believe and we do the opposite of that, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, like who here has not done that, right? Like you, you say that you believe something and then you do the opposite of it. We all have done that. I mean, I don't think it's good to, you know, yell at your kids, but I do it all the time. I don't agree with that, but I do it because my son gets me up on, you know, in the morning and screams and does all sorts of things. So, you, you know, you, you yell and everything. Um, we always do things that we disagree with. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. And so we all have done those things, and especially religious people who we agree with the law of God, but we can't keep the law of God for a single day. So it says here, 
For as it is written, the name of God is blasting among the Gentiles because of you. Um, now, obviously people say, well, I don't want to be a Christian because of you know, people not following God's law, not being good and everything. Um, but what's interesting here is that that's what people are doing here. They're, they're not following God because they're seeing the hypocrisy and Paul is pointing it out. For circumcision is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So Paul's point to his Jewish hearers here is, is if you try to keep the law perfectly, uh, you're, it's not going to happen. And he's kind of pointing this out here to say, like, you know, they're thinking, okay, I'm circumcised, I hear the law, I'm good to go. But he's saying, no, in order to be saved by the law, you actually have to keep it perfectly. And uh, circumcision does you no good unless you can keep it perfectly. And we've seen from the previous message that that's not going to happen. No one can keep the law perfectly. And so what Paul is doing is what he did last message, which is he is putting up the standard of God's law to show that we cannot meet that standard. Um, and so this is a, a point that Paul has repeatedly throughout his writings. Um, Galatians 5, 2 through 3, this is going to sound familiar here. But he says... Uh, Look, Paul, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts, uh, accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep not a part of the law, the whole enchilada, the whole law. And so Paul's point here is the same as it was in, as in Galatians. If you want to be saved by the law, you think it's just you, you get circumcised and that's good enough for you? No, he says you have to keep all of it perfectly, which, by the way, no one can do. So he is diagnosing their problem so that he can offer the good news that Jesus kept the law in our, in our place. All our law-breaking, Jesus died and suffered for, and so that Jesus also was righteous in our place. And so Paul begins to give us a sneak peek of the, the deliverance here. He talks about what saves us, which is a circumcision of the heart, which is basically the Old Testament way of saying being born again. Circumcision of the heart is like the, is, is like the New Testament equivalent to being born again. So he says here in verses 28 through 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, so it's done by the Holy Spirit, we don't do it. Like, you know, uh, physical circumcision happens by a doctor, right? But no, it's, it's, this is by God. This is by the Holy Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is from man, not from man, but from God. And that's a play on the, the, the Greek or the Hebrew word Judah, which means like we know we're Jews and Judah comes from. It just means like praise or thanksgiving. So he's playing on the word uh, on, on Jew here. He's kind of having a funny play on words. But the language here of being circumcised in the heart is not something that Paul just like 
made up. Like he's being like an innovator of speech here. Like, oh yeah, I got a new word. It's called circumcision of the, of the heart. No, this actually is rooted in the Old Testament language. He's appealing to the, his Jewish brothers and saying, hey, look, this is from the Old Testament here. It's not about these outward ceremonies or just keeping these outward things. No, 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 no. This is rooted in God's truth in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 36, which was our uh, Old Testament reading. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So the religious Jews of Paul's day thought that if you were physically circumcised, good to go. You're totally fine. Don't even worry about it. You're good with God. He loves you. You're, you're in just by having a procedure done to your flesh. And um, they actually thought that they would get into heaven, go into the kingdom of God by their circumcision. And here's just kind of a few quotes from rabbis at the time who actually believed and felt that, hey, yeah, if you had physical circumcision, you're not going to hell, you're going to heaven. He, it says, circumcised men do not descend into Gehenna. That was one rabbi. The rabbi says, circumcision will deliver Israel from Gehenna. So you see this like, totally elevated view of circumcision and Paul just takes you know, like a wrecking ball takes out his hammer and just dashes it to pieces and there's um, another statement here in Romans 2 that would uh, definitely have offended them and you're just like yeah I could, you could even see it today how this would offend people I've heard people being offended by this teaching just like Paul saying this. But he says, a, a, being a, a true Jew, a spiritual Jew, a Jew on the inside, doesn't have anything to do with physical descendancy, you know, who your you know, great, great, great grandpa was. It has nothing to do with that, being a descendant of Abraham. What really makes someone truly Jewish is being inwardly transformed by the Spirit of God. That person is a spiritual Jew, and that's what matters most. Now, you could imagine, like, you know, these, these Jews had a deep identity in their, uh, in their background and in, the, in their heritage. This would have just drove them nuts. I mean, could you imagine him saying this to them? So this is definitely, uh, Paul is, is uh, writing a pretty offensive sermon to his uh, Jewish brothers here. And his, his teaching here is not only in the book of Romans, but it's also in Galatians uh, 3 verses 5 through 9. Does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So those are the sons of Abraham, but those who have faith. It says it right there. That's incredible. So, that, so if you believe in Jesus Christ this morning, you are a true spiritual Jew. You are, a, you are a, a, a spiritual son of Abraham. And scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles. I mean, the Gentiles were like, those people are never getting to heaven. And here he's saying, if you believe by faith, you are a spiritual Jew. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. A future promise of God's work by the spirit. So then those who are of faith are blessed with, along with Abraham, the man of faith. I mean, you just, this is just devastating to them. Shocking. Um, I know we're not first century Jews, but I'm trying to paint the picture of what that would be like. And this is like someone who um, 
an analogy. It's like someone who's had like, you know, in their background, like they've, all their family has like a great lineage of Jonathan Edwards or some reformer or some really amazing spiritual person. All their family, you know, seven generation of missionaries and, you know, their dads were pastors and they've been baptized and there's like a lineage of faithfulness in their background. And so some people think they're born into that and like, well, I'm already getting in because look what, look at, you know, dad and great granddad were like, you know, so I'm already, I got my ticket, I'm good to go. And so he's kind of dashing that kind of hope of finding your confidence and your worth and your value in your family identity rather than in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, and so he's saying, yeah, it doesn't matter you follow these customs. It doesn't matter who your daddy was. You have to have this circumcision of heart. You have to start over from all of these customs and these identities. You have to be reborn. And Jesus makes a similar point to a self-righteous Pharisee named Nicodemus, a story we all know and love, if you've read through the New Testament, um, John 3.1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he's saying, yeah, in order to get in the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, you have to be born again. This doesn't matter if you're the head honcho in Israel. It doesn't matter what your title and status is, your lineage. You know, so Jesus and Paul take out their sledgehammer on like, you know, prestige of the past and just crush it. And they say, hey, you have to be changed by God. And that change in the Bible is called a lot of things. It's called being born again, as I said, circumcision of the heart. They all, all of these things point to the same reality. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, new creation, they're all pointing to the same reality. And I think Paul captures it. And this the reality that God gives you grace, and then you come to faith. And this is, I think, well put in Colossians 2.11 through 13 here. It says, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That's a spiritual circumcision. It's made without hands, meaning it's done by God himself. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, what Jesus did on the cross. Having been buried with him in baptism, this is spiritual baptism, so you have spiritual circumcision by this spiritual baptism, in which you were also raised through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is coming from death to life. This is the transformation that God does in us. And so it's called circumcision of the heart, made without hands. It's called baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, regeneration. There's a lot of words that are used to describe this beginning point of the Christian life. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Look at that. So we have a circumcision without hands, having been baptized by the Holy Spirit of God. It's something that God does to us, bringing us from death to life. And so this is the first event that we have in our, in our new life in Christ. And so, uh, yeah, everybody who, um, who is a Christian, who's been saved, is a born-again Christian, whether or not most Americans want to admit that or not. But all Christians are born-again Christians. And, and as I said, there's many ways the Bible refers to this. Uh, um, one I like in particular in Second um, Corinthians five seventeen is a new creation language, which is really uh, helpful in thinking about this. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, so anybody who follows Christ, anybody who is a believer, who is saved, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So all Christians are a new creation. All are born again. You can't like separate. I'm a Christian, but over there are those born again Christians. No, they're one and the same in the New Testament. Everybody who trusts and believes in Christ is a born again Christian. Um, now, there's something uh, very significant about this, if you think about it, um, because uh, what do having a new creation in your heart, being born again, and uh, circumcision of the heart, what do they all have in common? What, what does this language point to? I mean, they all express a beginning point, that's for sure. But what did you have to do with your own birth? What kind of contribution did you have to that? I mean... It's all your mother, right? She's the one that did that work. Now, if someone is circumcised, usually a doctor nowadays, right? We understand. Um, you don't have anything to do with that um, at that point in your life, right? Um, so what did you have to do with your own creation? Did you create yourself? No. It's the Lord that did that. It's the Lord that created you. And so, you see, being born again... Is, is not something that can be achieved or earned or strived for. It isn't something you get from being baptized physically. No, none of these things. And I say this because there's a great deal of confusion about this, about how one becomes born again. Um, I want to read to you from a very popular article. This is done by a very prominent and well-known um, evangelical pastor who uh, teaches on the new birth. And um, in this book, he says that in order to to be born again, we have to go through certain steps. And one of the first steps is, of course, repenting of sin, is what he says. This is what he writes. How do we become born again? By repenting of sin? I don't know if you can repent of every sin, because what if you forget one? But anyways, that means we are willing to change our way of living, then by faith, so he puts faith after repentance, which is very interesting. Then by faith, we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Master and Savior. Now, this is not entirely accurate, as I say, because the first step is when we hear the word of God and then God brings us from death to life. This is the first step. We've been made spiritually, made alive, and then we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. Now, all of these steps happen in a single moment, um, you know, like if you were, say, like blind or something and you were healed of your blindness, well, the immediate moment you were brought from, you know, being blind to seeing, I mean, once your, once your blindness is healed, healed, you immediately see. But you can't see until your blindness is cured, right? And so the same is, see, is the case with being born again, is God changing your life and opening your heart, opening your eyes, so that you may believe in Jesus Christ and be saved in the very first place. And scripture teaches this all over the place that, that in order for us to come to Jesus, in order for us to see when we are blind, is that God has to draw us first by his amazing grace. If you were never drawn, you'd never come. This is what uh, John 6, says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day, the last day of the resurrection, being raised up in salvation and glory. So you can't come unless you're drawn. All those who are drawn are raised up on the last day. And again, we have one more uh, passage that confirms this in the book of Acts with uh, Lydia here. 
Acts 16, 14, God opens her heart. We see this. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. Very specific there. They had to be perfect uh, or purple. Um, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said to her by Paul. So God had to open her heart for her to pay attention and for her to receive the gospel message in the first place. You know, um, one of the things is, when I remember when I was an um, unbeliever, and I would go to church like once a month because I kind of thought like, well, you know, I don't really know if God exists back then when I was a teenager. I thought, you know, but if I went to church once a month, maybe if God did exist, he would strike me some sort of deal. You know, that's what I thought. But so I would go to church. I would never listen to any of the sermons. I couldn't even like pay attention or focus. I remember my friends, very pushy Christians, they would push me to go to Bible studies and I would just like zone out the entire time. And this was before iPhones, remember? Because now I'm turning into a, a middle-aged person or something, right? Um, and so, you know, you know, I would just zone out. I couldn't, I couldn't concentrate when I was an unbeliever to a single word the pastor was saying, even if I tried. But, you know, just one day I, I was listening to a sermon after a debate by the pastor, Greg Bonson, and all of a sudden, just, just the words pierced me. And they, they got me to repent of my sins, trust in Christ, and all those things. And it's like I was never able to pay attention, or even when the Bible was read to me, I was never even able to pay attention. Like, I would just be like, all right, let's, are we going to Sizzler after church? What's the deal here? Always thinking about food, whether I'm saved or unsaved. You know that, right? I mean, come on. Um, so there's that. That's something never changed. Um, so, you know, I'd be thinking about where we're going to eat, all, all the possibilities, you know, as a teenage boy. Um, but, you know, just one day, it just pierced my heart hearing a pastor preach um, after a debate discussion kind of thing. You see, the problem people have with this kind of message that Jesus taught and Paul taught is, okay, so there's nothing I can do to be born again. We hate that because, you know, the one, it's, the one thing people hate more than do this is saying there's nothing you can do. People don't like to hear that kind of thing. Then I shouldn't do anything because I can't. So I should just sit around, twiddle my thumbs, and wait to be spiritually zapped. You know, if it's based on what God does to me, then why try doing anything at all? And so what is so interesting about these kind of questions is when you look at Paul, Paul just seamlessly here just sees no conflict at all with the Holy Spirit transforming you and that being from God and God alone. Because in the, in the very same letter, he tells believers to trust, believe, and receive Christ. And he goes on to tell us to evangelize, to spread the gospel, and that people are not going to believe unless we spread the gospel. So it doesn't seem like this sort of spiritual zapping that goes on like we're robots or something. I don't know how people think about it. But you look at this in Romans, look at how evangelistic this is, even with Paul's teaching that God has to do something to us in our hearts before we come to Jesus. Romans 10, 8 through 17. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. You'll say, oh, it's so hard to have faith. I don't know how to have faith, Pastor. You know, do I just wait for God to zap me? No, it's right there in front of you. Take it and go for it. That is the word of faith we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Great message of the gospel. It's not by effort and achieving. It is, it is just by receiving. For the heart, one believes and is justified and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, 
Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on, on, who, on, on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they going to believe? Paul, they going to believe. And how are they going to believe on him whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear without someone preaching? That's why preaching is so important in telling people about Jesus. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord has, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing. So you have to hear it. And hearing through the word of Christ. So Paul says, if you hear the gospel, that is the occasion which God works in your heart to save you. You don't just, you know, sit around at home twiddling your thumbs watching the news and all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, now I'm born again. No, you hear it from a pastor. You hear it from someone preaching, whether it be a pastor or whoever. And um, so he says, yeah, go out and spread the gospel. Evangelize. Tell people about Jesus. When you tell people about Jesus and about what he's done for them, then that will, on that occasion, God will wake them up. Um, and when people reject the gospel, it's their own fault because they have freely rejected in their own deadness of their sins. But Paul's point here and the point of the two New Testament authors is that, is that for unbelievers to want to desire to change, God has to bring that change through the preaching of the gospel. This is what 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25 says. It says, since you have been born again, so all that language is not just made up. It comes from, this is the clearest part it comes from in terms of the Greek, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed. And going away, once you're born again, you can't get un, like not born again or something. You're born again. For all, uh, through the living and abiding word of God. So this is through the, the, the preaching of God's word. All flesh is like grass and all of its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that is preached to you. And so, yeah, we want to present the gospel to people because that is when they are, uh, God does his work, basically. When we preach and God uses us to send out preachers and missionaries, that is when God does his work. So we should always be confident about the preaching of the gospel, that it changes lives, that it changes hearts, because that is when the Lord does his work. Um, and, and the Bible, uh, at the same time, tells us to people to believe and repent of their sins. So this is a commandment we have. And so, um, you know, it's not like people can say, well, you know, I, I don't believe and so, you know, it's all God's fault or something. No, the word is right there in front of you. Take it and believe it and receive. Just do it. Kind of like as Nike says, just go for it, you know? Um, and so faith is, is, is easy for anybody once God has opened their heart. It's not like something that, you know, some people think they have to like really try to have faith. It's just a simply receiving a gift is what scripture tells us. Now, um, I understand there's people that are kind of uncomfortable. I've met folks that are uncomfortable with this. But I, and I, I understand why someone might be feeling that way, and I want to think about this for a moment, kind of how we kind of process this. So say that you have, um, uh, you, you obviously believe in Christ, I hope. That, that's my prayer for you. Um, but say your neighbor doesn't. So you believe in Jesus, the guy next door doesn't. Okay, so why do you believe 
And why doesn't he? What's the reason behind that? You say, well, I responded properly to God's offer of, of grace for me. That's why, Nate. And then I can ask the question, but why did you respond properly to God's grace and not the other guy? Well, you, you know, Nate, um, I was able to see God's truth and grace more clearly than my neighbor did. And then I could ask you, okay, so um, why were you able to see God's truth and the importance of receiving God's grace better than your neighbor? And what happens here is, is, that, is that if you don't appeal to the born again explanation, you're kind of stuck in this position where you're a little bit more spiritually sensitive. I was more spiritually sensitive of my sin. Where you're kind of bragging about yourself just a little tiny bit. It's very, very small. You know, it's like, well, you know, I was just more sensitive to sin. It's like, well, why were you more sensitive and why not your neighbor? And well, is, I mean, well, I just received the gift and my neighbor didn't. And so maybe, you know, he's just not as wise as I am. So anytime you appeal to that, you kind of get in this position where you're bragging a little tiny bit and, and say, you know, uh, well, you know, the real reason is, is because it was God. He had grace and mercy on me. God loved me. And so we just kind of have to throw up our hands and say, God was, was, was kind to me. He had mercy upon me. He had grace upon me. And he brought me from death to life. Praise God. Thank God for that, who made me born again. And so we can't boast at all when you hear this, not even a tiny bit. Like, you know, I just was more aware of things, I guess. Or I just, I finally saw it. You know, I was able to see it for the very first time. But yeah, why? Why? And I, and I want to say it's God who cures blindness not me. I didn't cure my own blindness. It was the Lord who cured my blindness. And so this, Paul does this kind of to take away all of this self-righteousness that the Jewish people would have had. It strips you of all of the pride and self-righteousness because the beautiful thing about this biblical teaching is that it takes away any feeling of superiority, superiority you have over others. It takes away any kind of pride. Um, so if I had my computer iPad up here and... Um, Supposing I had tons of money, right? Like I was a millionaire or something. I was like, I have a gift for all of you. I have my nifty little iPad up here. And all you got to do is press one button and immediately to your bank account, you get a million dollars, you know, kind of thing. You get a million bucks right away. If you just press this little, little button, you know, and like, wow, that's a pretty good deal. And so, you know, I'm pretty sure all of you would press a button. I hope you want a million dollars, you know, assuming I'm a billionaire or something. And uh, imagine, though, if someone didn't press the button. They're like, I, I don't want a million dollars. I know Nate has a lot of money. He's loaded, you know. And, you know, uh, but, you know, I don't want a million dollars. You can imagine someone saying, what an idiot. Like, what a dope. That's a million dollars. Why didn't you just take it? And then what happens is that people kind of look down and like, well, obviously that person, like, doesn't want, like, a million dollars. You know how much charity you can help out with a million bucks? You can help and... and you know, bless the world with that, that money, even if you don't want to spend it on yourself. And so what happens if, is that if someone takes the gift and someone doesn't, people tend who take the gift will, will kind of have this view like, oh, wow, that person, but why did they not take that, that money? Why did they not take the gift? Kind of like looking down on them, right? And, you know, eternal life is a lot better than a million dollars, isn't it? Amen to that, right? It's way better than a million dollars. And so I've seen Christians do this, and it's not the right way to think about this. I've seen Christians kind of say like, why doesn't that guy believe? What's, what's that guy's problem? Like, oh, 
It's like eternal life. It's right there. Why don't you just believe? And there becomes kind of this self-righteousness and this frustration with unbelievers like, oh, like, why can't you just figure it out like I did? Like, what's your deal? Kind of thing. And so what this does is it blows it all away. It gives us more sympathy and compassion for unbelievers that we are to be praying for them. We, we pray to God to do his work. We don't pray to the person. We pray to the Lord to, to work in their heart. And so it gives us you know, sympathy because if it weren't for God saving us by his amazing grace, we would be just like them. We were just like that. So there's no difference here. There's no distinction here. I, I can't feel like, well, you know, um, my friend doesn't believe in Jesus. What, you know, why did, what's his, I, you know, I've given him the evidence. I've laid it out a pretty clear, compelling case for Christianity. Why doesn't this guy believe? What's his deal? You know, I, I've heard believers say that in kind of frustration over, uh, you know, friends or someone they love not coming to Christ. There's sort of like, what's, what's going on? Why can't they just believe? And instead, this gives us compassion and sympathy because we would be just like that if it weren't for the grace of God. We can't think that we're any different, any wiser. All we can do at the end of the day is put up our hands and say, thank you, Jesus. And then we can pray for those people. We can show love. We can have compassion and empathy for those people who don't believe. And we can be in their life without feeling frustration and indignation. Because we're getting frustrated. It's like I do this with my son. My son acts and looks just like me. And I get, I get frustrated at my son because he doesn't like to go down to the nursery. So I'm carrying, you guys see me in the back. I'm carrying him screaming and kicking, you know. And I, I got mad at him. Uh, one day just because he just wouldn't listen. And I, God convicted my heart right then and said, Nate, you hated to go down to Sunday school when you were that age. And it's like, I'm like, I should not be so hard on him. He's just like me, you know? And so I'm here, I'm hard on my son. And so we have to have that mentality towards unbelievers. They're, that's just how I was. Why am I being so hard on this person? And instead of resentment and anger, we're like, oh, I understand let me just love this person. Let me just pray for this person. I have sympathy now and understanding. And so it gives us a more rich experience with our uh, unbelieving friends and loved ones to have patience and kindness and mercy towards them when they're struggling. Because that was just like you before you knew Jesus. And the most important thing about this is that all the thanks goes to God. All the glory goes to God. Thank you, God, for saving me. I had nothing to do with this. This was all your grace. You opened my heart so that I could receive by faith. You worked in me to freely embrace the gospel. Thank you, Jesus. And so all the glory goes to God, and it has compassion towards our neighbors. I think these are important things, to honor God and to love our neighbor. That's what the Christian life is all about, is, is focused on serving people. And I think this truth helps us do that a lot better. So may God be glorified. Let us pray.